from Commander's Palace Restaurant in the Garden District in New Orleans. We're out to lunch with Peter Raschuti. Peter Raschuti is Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and economist. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Once a week, I have lunch at Commander's Palace and invite guests from the world of New Orleans business to join me. In the last few years, New Orleans has become a hotbed of entrepreneurial new businesses. It's astounding how we are moving from a tourist and oil and gas economy to become a business city that people no longer leave. They come here for the opportunity. One of the mysteries of how entrepreneurial business works is how does a guy with a great idea meet a guy with a bank account who can fund it? Today, we're going to attempt to answer that question with my two lunch guests, venture capitalist Joe Lovett and startup entrepreneur Peter Ragusa. Joe, Peter, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you. Thank you. Good to have you guys here. Joe Lovett has been in venture capital for over four decades. He's managed over $100 million, taken 13 companies public, had an illustrious association with Harvard University, and helped bring to life medical devices that are integral to medicine today. Joe is the managing general partner of the Louisiana Fund, a $26 million high technology venture capital fund based in Baton Rouge. Now, under Joe's leadership, the Louisiana Fund has invested in 13 early stage companies in the areas of life sciences, information technology, nanotechnologies, and security systems. Peter Ragusa is an MD who back in 2010 started up a medical software company to allow doctors to seamlessly integrate electronic health records, billing and scheduling in a patient-friendly application. Peter's new product is called Better Day, which is founded with his brother Rand and his college roommate Jeff Miller. Peter and Joe, I have been looking forward to introducing you two guys to each other for a while here. Peter, uh, I thought I'd start with you. Uh, maybe you can give us a brief idea of what Better Day is all about, and uh, and then Joe, you could tell us if you like to sink a couple of million dollars into it. That's that's the way we ought to have lunch here, right? So, so Peter, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> Go ahead. Sure. Essentially, uh, we are creating a, a software product that attempts to address uh, numerous issues within the healthcare system, like the inefficiencies of documentation, where new mandates from the government have mandated the introduction of computers into the exam room, and these computers have become both physical and emotional barriers with patients. And so what we want to do is take the computer out from in between the patient and the provider and actually uh, restore that, that relationship. So our software is essentially a patient-centered, web-based health management platform. And what does that mean? That means that the patient will have access and full control of their data including the ability to see who has accessed it and control that access at any time. And it, it functions as a data store uh, for all of this information coming from home-based devices and mobile monitors. So uh, the glucose monitor uh, a, a diabetic may have or um, the arrhythmia monitors, et cetera, uh, will then feed data back into our system and then we use that data uh, coupled with predictive modeling to uh, predict when a patient might get sick, and then notify both the patient and the provider that uh, some, something needs to happen. So either they need to check in with their provider, the provider needs to check in with the patient, et cetera. And so in doing so, we think that we not only streamline the delivery of healthcare, but we actually improve the overall quality uh, based on evidence. So this is some of this is proactive, not just reactive. And, uh, and it's funny, with the big healthcare debate, the only thing everybody seems to agree on is this one point that the, the understanding of the data, the records, all of this has to, and you're right in the sweet spot, I would imagine. We believe we are. Um, you know, 
despite the fact that this industry is 25 years old, there is no product currently on the market that we're aware of that focuses on the patient rather than the physician and the billing cycle. And really that's what healthcare has become about in America is claims management, billing and reimbursement. And what we want to do is help lead the healthcare industry back to a patient-centered paradigm where we actually, the, the penultimate concern is the patient and the patient's well-being, not uh, time to reimbursement. Well, now, so you've, uh, give me an example of where, uh, like how would you approach a potential client like a doctor? Uh, what, would, what, would, what would you talk to them about if you got a few minutes with them? Sure, if we got a few minutes with them, what I would ask them is if they wanted to be able to access their patient's health record from anywhere at any time through any web-based or mobile device, and if they wanted to be able to document the patient's encounter without having to do transcription and dictation. Which is the bane of existence, right? Absolutely. D during commercial breaks in the evenings at home, they're documenting <laughs> encounters. God, traveling. I don't want to know this. This is right, bad. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, and sometimes that process can take weeks uh, to actually complete that encounter for the bill to be sent off and reimbursed. And so what we're trying to do is save docs time while improving care. Uh, for instance, when I returned from the government relations fellowship at the American Medical Association back to the University of Minnesota to do my rotations during medical school, I found that I would meet with a patient for 15 minutes and it would take me up to an hour to actually document that encounter. Now, having been the government relations fellow, I was learning about all of these macroeconomic forces in healthcare and quickly came to realize that this was an unsustainable model, that there was uh, never like, you know, like never before increase for demand in healthcare. And now we're having decreased resources because these technologies are causing doctors to have increased burnout, increased errors, lower empathy, and, and higher job dissatisfaction, ultimately leading to early retirement. So what's happened is some of these guys, uh, some of these docs uh, have, have uh, actually retired early because they refuse to adopt the technology because it slows them down. Some companies, uh, organizations, you know, provider organizations do not return to their pre electronic health record implementation uh, productivity for up to 18 months and newer data is showing that they may never get back to their pre-implementation productivity. So that, that means they're seeing fewer patients and that means less people are being cared for. So there are broad implications of, of these mandates and, and, and these systems. Well now, now Joe, uh, let's talk about the merits of Peter's technology and where it might take him and the medical profession in just a minute. But first though, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do, I'm sure a lot of people listening are thinking, I'd love a job like that, giving away money, that uh, it could be very popular. Uh, tell us about <laughs> where your capital comes from in Louisiana and, uh, and how you decide where to invest it. Sure, uh, let me back up for a second. I've been in the venture capital portion of this business since 1988. I've been in the life sciences business since 1970, first with three wow. corporations. So I've kind of grown up in this business. Uh, where the capital comes from, we have 26 million and we're raising another fund of 50 million, is your traditional mix of venture capital investors, university endowments, uh, pension funds, foundations, some family offices, and some high net worth individuals. So very sophisticated investors. Very sophisticated investors. The pension funds all use gatekeepers. They don't make, and there are five Louisiana-based pension funds in our partnership. They all use outside consultants. Uh, so we had to go through a rigorous process. Because this would be, a, I haven't served on some of those pension boards, Joe, I mean, this would be a tougher thing to look at than a, a stock or bond manager. 
you'd really need someone to help. Yeah, you do, and they, they have private equity specialists that look at us, and you know, we know these people, we knew them from Boston, um, and um, we have, particularly, we have here, we have the universities, and we focus on the universities. We have all the centers of life sciences excellence in the state. We have Tulane, we have the LSU Endowment, the Pennington Medical Foundation Endowment, and Women's Hospital. That's where probably 90 plus percent of the research in the state is. And um, I moved here in, 19, in 2004, really, when we met Peter. Right, that's and right. We had, instantly became friends because Peter had a Red Sox coffee mug in his bookcase. Yes, case. that's one way to so drag in those do. bean towners. There's Absolutely. <laughs> so anyway, uh, there's a lot of good stuff going on here, but that's where our money comes from. And They're really sophisticated investors. And these, um, these investors, one of the reasons they, they look to something like this, I guess the payoffs, the payoffs could be quite large for an investor, right? But they're taking on substantial risk being at this stage. Right? Yeah, they do. But if you, if, you think, if you look at the data for venture capital funds, Venture capital funds return uh, the top tier venture funds, high teens, low 20s, and they consistently outperform the Dow. Very, very few funds don't return their capital. So when you look at the, the data for all venture capital funds, it sounds sexy, it sounds yeah. risky. It, it really isn't when you look at all of them. If we're doing our job, pe people make money with yeah. us. It's different because the payoff's a little longer term for what for what we do. And this is a little inside baseball, but uh, back to baseball again, it's, uh, is the fact that uh, one of the things that appeals to these investors is that your returns aren't correlated with the rest of their portfolio. In other words, stocks and bonds are going in one way, yours is a different side. No, that's right, and that actually appeals to a lot of investors. Uh, a lot of pension funds and endowments will take a certain portion of their portfolio, say 3% or 5% or 10% or even 30% with the case of some of the pension funds, and invest them in what's called alternative assets. Oil and gas, venture capital partnerships, and you know this is particularly important when the returns for stocks and bonds went the other way during the financial yeah. recession. And, and Joe, the thing I was thinking about, when I was talking to some friends about having you two on the show, and it, it kind of been bragging about this for the last week here, is, the, uh, is that they had mentioned to me that uh, you know, where do these ideas come from? And when something is created at a university, you know, who owns it? Uh, one, of, one of the examples everybody seemed to bring up to me was the example of uh, Gatorade many years ago. It, I guess the, the, the scientist in the lab coat thought he owned it, but it, since it was at the University of Florida, University of Florida owned it, and they pointed out that it wasn't, it was Gatorade, it wasn't Bob-Aid, and, uh, and that Bob didn't own the, yeah. <laughs> so where, where do these come from? I mean, do you approach the university, or do you approach the scientist, or? They come from all places, from the scientists, from the technology transfer officers at the universities, from the department chairman, from other officials at the university, and lots of times they come directly from the scientist. And at universities that aren't too sophisticated in this, they'll very, very well often ask us, what do we do with this? Who owns it? Well, the university owns it. But the universities, particularly LSU and Louisiana Tech and Tulane, already have sophisticated policies of sharing the upside with the inventors. Okay. A split of the royalties, a split of the milestones. Uh, so that, that's all done. And then if you were, um, I guess you are actually, you're here, with, you're here with Peter, what kind of conversation would you two have? What would, how would it start? Um, First of all, we know a little bit about Peter's company because Tom Dickerson, my partner, who's sitting at the next table, has an office at Nobic. So we know a little bit about it and we're kind of looking around for deals for our next fund. Uh, but the things we're looking for are breakthrough opportunities. You know, game changers, disruptive used to be 
used quite a few years ago. Nobody uses that anymore. <laughs> We're looking for high return uh, type investments that will change things, not just you know, another software company that a physician can use. We're not looking for another electronic medical record. We're looking for something different that really can, in, the, in your case, from the little I've heard, can really save money. Uh, because that's the name of the game now in healthcare, is making physicians more efficient. That so that's what we're looking for. And software is interesting because done right, you can actually make a lot of money with software. It's not very capital intensive. You don't need, haven't seen your business plan, but you probably do not need a lot of money. You know, we're not talking about a, a drug that has to go into the clinic uh, and raise multi-gazillion dollars. Yours really doesn't. Distribution's a lot easier, so that's appealing about software. It's a, so, but it, but there still would be that relationship. I mean, trying to get somebody like a Peter in, in that twenty-six million dollar fund. How many how many Peters are in there? I guess. Uh, well, we have thirteen investments. Ten of them are, are real companies with management teams that, you know, are functioning and have raised a lot of money. Uh, three of them are are like research projects that we're going to take to a certain stage and sell. And we've raised eighty-one million dollars for these companies, and a lot of the money has come from outside of Louisiana, with. Primo blue chip venture capital investors that have discovered Louisiana. And they weren't around before, right? This is they weren't around new. before, and that's one of the things that attracted me here was that this was virgin territory. There was, as you know, Peter, yep. there wasn't much venture capital. Right. In fact, Tulane had thought of a fund before and had gone down one avenue and then decided not to do it. So that they kind of rolled out the welcome mat along with LSU and the Department of Economic Development. Let's get something going here because this is a missing piece to the puzzle. Well, we've got a good start here. I'm going I'm to do something now we like to call the checklist, which is a part of the show where we just ask you some questions that you know probably you wouldn't find on a, on a bank loan application, just to find out a little something. Um, Peter, you're originally from Lake Charles, right? So you, you grew up in the state. I'll, I'll ask good Louisiana question. Do you cook? I do. What, what, do, you, what do you like to make? Uh, rice and gravy. Right. <laughs> roast, roast rice and gravy and, and gumbo, I guess, would be the two, two top. Well, good. And, and, and Joe, uh, you're originally from Massachusetts. Do you like to cook at all? Or? Uh, no. Really? Usually that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, sometimes that's, that helps on these questions. Uh, the, the, uh, and uh, uh, Joe, what do you complain about most? Do you get a pet peeve? Uh, not really. You know, life has been very good to me, and I just got married, so things are oh. very good. Well, you're, on, you're on a roll. You got $26 million and a beautiful new wife. It's like, <laughs> I feel like, <laughs> now, like I just, now I just need to be a professor at Tulane. Oh, right? absolutely, yeah. yes. It's not like we're on a game show. I'll take <laughs> door number three. What about yourself? Is there something that bugs you day to day you wish you could change? Uh, there's not enough time <laughs> in the day. Oh, no, it's not. I thought not enough time to answer the question. No, I no. I thought that was, uh, was going to be no, bad. No, no, there's not hey. enough time. 24 hours is not enough. You just you get that much going on in there. Right. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, right now we like to check our inbox. Now, this is when our producer picks a question that comes in from our, list, uh, our listener. Grant, uh, what do you have this week? Peter, I got a lot of stuff in this week when we said who was going to be on the show. I thought this is actually a pretty relevant question. This is from a person called Steve Dunstan who asks, with the concentration of academic excellence to get into medical school and the reliance on technology and healthcare and its attendant cost, how do we keep not just the patient but actual hands-on medical treatment paramount in patient care? Do you guys have any comment on that? Right, that that's, that's exactly what our system is designed to do. I mean, when we talk about risk, uh, personally I have about $300,000 in student loans. so. You know, when, when I was 
sitting at Yale looking out and doing the, the analysis of this market and, tr and trying to determine what, what might be the best. I drew on uh, the best route to go, either straight into residency or, or to, to start a business. I, I drew on my history uh, as I was going through medical education. And, and what, I, what I recall is that you know, there's sort of a phenomenon, you can't measure what you can't see. And I was also involved in, in physician licensing. And so there's this idea that there's so much data available today. How do we test physicians on it? How do we know that they're competent and, 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 and to practice safe medical care? Uh, and, and so our system really tries to tie in all of the data points and stakeholders uh, for instance, the government now has what they call quality measures, where they're, they're making physicians report back certain uh, measures, like how many of your diabetic patients have a hemoglobin A1C below six, which is a blood test for diabetics to, 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 to track how well their blood sugar is being controlled, uh, you know, on down the line. And what we're finding is those are just process measures. And, you know, how many of your patients, rather than did you, how many of your patients were prevented, you know, amputation was prevented because you closely followed these numbers. So, so that's an outcome measure. How, how well did your patient uh, proceed through their life in terms of quality of life and outcomes, not process, not how many times did you check this or check that. And uh, we're just starting to wrap our hands around how to use that data relative to medical training and medical education, but it's really uh, a platform like ours that's going to take the data from all of these sources, whether it's labs, radiology, uh, the patient encounter during a clinic or the hospitalization, and pull this data in and really use uh, sort of redefine data-driven uh, healthcare uh, in terms of the patient and the quality of care and not just uh, the quantity of care. Well, now, where are you in the stage of the product? I mean, is it in use now? We are moving into pilot right now. Uh, we're, uh, next week, we're, we're moving out into our first clinic and we've been very fortunate to ha have quite a bit of interest uh, from the healthcare community. We're working uh, with Tulane on about five different projects uh, at various, in various capacities. And uh, it's a very exciting time for us. Uh, we're, we're also prepping to go out and, and meet the Joes of the world. <laughs> so uh, this, this is uh, great timing. Well, great. I know this is just isn't an average Joe, but our, but our, our Joe, what, what do you think in regard to that question? I mean, uh, you, you've brought a lot of things into the marketplace that have helped. What's, what's missing? What's missing? Well, there's a lot to be done. I mean, healthcare is what? 15, 16, 18% of our budget and it's going up. We've got to bring the cost down and we can, we can bring it down by data management, which is essentially is your company to make physicians and nurses more efficient. We can bring it down by improved vaccines, which are terrific. We often forget the pre preventative side of this. We always think of therapy, therapy, right. therapy, but not getting the disease or catching the disease earlier through better diagnostic tests and better imaging tests is, is just as important, if not more important, than the eventual therapeutic pharmaceutical. Well, so there's so much to be done here. So this is a definitely growth industry. You, you could do this for a long time, I think. They, uh, and Joe, I, I, even though we, we've met before and such, how did you get into this? I mean, uh, you know, we're both from Boston, a lot of people in the financial community, but you're in a very special space. How did that happen? Well, I, I started my career with a corporation right out of college, the University of Vermont, and I stayed in the corporate world until 1988, and I was with one of the um, original biotech companies in Boston, and whose parent was 61% 60, ownership in us. 
And the parent was raided in 1988. I won't tell you who the raiders are since this is going to be on national TV, but you'd recognize at least one of the names. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and they decided to Sinister keep, music the, now. keep the clinical laboratory business and sell everything else. So they sold my company to Abbott Laboratories in Chicago, and I said I didn't want to go. And by accident, over a lunch at Maison Robert in Boston with a recruiter, she said, I just placed a guy named Andre Lamott with a fund that Harvard is behind and you ought to go talk to him. It was the quickest fee and easiest fee she's ever picked up. And we hit it <laughs> off and we raised $70 million and did very, very well. He's back in Europe and I moved here. That's how I got into the business, purely by accident. We're glad you wound up here. That's that's the part of the story I like best, Joe. The, uh, this is the part of the show we usually talk about a publicly traded company, and uh, I wanted to bring up one today, and that the company is uh, called Edgen Group, and they're out of Baton Rouge, and they just did an IPO recently. And I know when you talk about IPOs, everybody wants to talk about Facebook today. I'm, I am the only person talking about Edgen Group, but it's uh, <coughs> they are they're in, a, they're in they're in the industrial services business and make all that piping that you see that's on a, uh, a chemical plant or a refinery. A lot of it's used for the energy industry, and the ticker symbol is EDG. And it's really one of the first IPOs we've had in Louisiana in the last uh, last year or so. This company tried to go public a couple of years ago, had to kind of abort the deal, and finally uh, got it through. And one of the things that listeners may not know is why a company goes public. In this case, uh, Edgen had a lot of debt on the balance sheet, and it's a great way to, to add some equity to the uh, equity to the pie. And of course, the other thing about going public is that you create a currency because now you can use your stock to, to buy other companies. And and finally, it would be I would think a state work where uh, the people that founded these companies tend to have almost all their money in the company and uh, and not a lot of cash or other investments. And it's it's a way to kind of diversify their holdings. So we'll keep an eye on on these new guys up in. Uh, up in Baton Rouge. Joe Lovett, Peter Agusa, thank you so much for joining us on Out to Lunch. Uh, you've given us a fascinating insight into a sector of American healthcare that is going on right here in New Orleans and in Louisiana. Peter, Joe, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Peter. Peter, we're looking forward to following the progress of your company, and Joe, we'll keep up with your ventures that you're investing, and I look forward to staying in touch with both of you. My guests today and Out to Lunch have been Joe Lovett, Managing General Partner of the Louisiana Fund, and Peter Ragusa, co-founder of Voice HIT and its product, Better Day. Uh, if you'd like to know more about Peter's medical software or Joe's Venture Capital Fund, Follow the links on our websites, itsneworleans.com and wwno.org. Our show is recorded live over lunch at Commander's Palace in New Orleans. Commander's Palace serves lunch Monday to Friday, jazz brunch on Saturday and Sunday with live music and dinner seven nights a week. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our web designer and digital guru is Cliff Brigden. Jennifer Smith is our researcher. Mitch Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. And you can keep up with our continuing adventures in Crescent City Commerce by liking It's New Orleans on Facebook. And you can get in touch with us by email. We're outtolunch at itsneworleans.com or Twitter. Us. We're at Out to Lunch NOLA. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting and WWNO. For itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM, for everything you ever wanted to know about Out to Lunch and to listen to past shows, go to WWNO.org or itsneworleans.com. Until we meet again around the table here at Commander's Palace, I'm Peter Rashidi. Thanks for joining me on Out to Lunch.